Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When two Pulitzer Prize winners went looking for a setting to tell the story of five decades of American despair and the systemic failures that have fueled income inequality, poverty, and generational tragedies in so many communities, they didn't look far from Portland. About an hour southwest in the city of Yamhill, they documented decades of heartache, the loss of blue-collar jobs, the perils of drug addiction and domestic violence, the generations lost as a result. It's a heartbreaking depiction. Despite that, they still see reasons for hope. I'm Andrew Thien. And I'm Amy Wong, books columnist, and this is Beat Check with The Oregonian. Up next, Amy and I talk with Nicholas Kristoff, a columnist for The New York Times, and Cheryl Boudin, a former correspondent for The Times. Kristoff grew up on a farm that his family still runs near Yamhill. The husband and wife reporting team have written several best-selling books together. Their latest, called Tightrope, is a picture of poverty in America, told mostly through the stories of the Oregonians who rode the bus with Kristoff decades ago. Here's that conversation. Well, Nick Kristoff, Cheryl Wudun, thanks for coming into the studio today. Appreciate it. Oh, a pleasure. We're delighted to be back in God's country. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So let's start with um, why and when did you decide to write this book? Well, we actually had been covering as foreign correspondents a whole bunch of things, including humanitarian crises overseas. And we um, have been coming back to Yamhill every year. And uh, there were people who work on the farm, you know, Nick's old friends. We started talking to a lot of these people a little bit more deeply, and we realized that there was a humanitarian crisis unfolding in our own backyard. And we hadn't expected it, partly because, of course, everyone thinks America is the richest country on earth. But in fact, as we went into their homes, they invited us in to talk about what kind of pain and suffering they were going through. Uh, It is just as tragic as any kind of uh, a tragedy overseas too. It's it's the human condition, and they are going through pain and suffering. Was there a light bulb moment of uh, you know you just kind of have seen this happening as reporters? You kind of put it together, but then these are also your friends and people you've known for decades. Was there a point where it's like click? We have to we have to do this book. Not really. I think for a long time I was I was just kind of overwhelmed by how friends were dying, ended up getting arrested for drug offenses. And I just thought maybe there, I mean, is this something terribly wrong with the number six bus from Yamhill or Mm -hmm. is it something wrong with Yamhill or, I mean, what's going on? And then Cheryl and I came across the national data showing that life expectancy in the entire U.S. was dropping for three of the last four years uh, because of drugs, alcohol, and suicide. And at that point, I, you know, I thought, okay, that is the number six bus out of Yamhill. That's, that's my classmates. So how did that become your book then? Uh, in other words, what was your, what's your elevator pitch? How do you describe the book to folks who aren't familiar with it? 
Tightrope is about the struggles of the working class. Uh, it is much broad, much more broad-based, but we anchor it in uh, Nick's hometown of Yamhill because we were able to get access to people's feelings and their emotions and uh, their history in a way that we had never anticipated. Then, to make sure that this wasn't just Yamhill, although the data proves it uh, as well, we also went to other states in the U.S. and my goodness, once we knew what to look for, uh, we discovered that this kind of pain and suffering is happening across the country. What do you look for? I guess, what data sets did you look for when you're trying to see if there are other yam hills out there? Angus Deaton and uh, Anne Case are two economists at Princeton that looked at census data. In their initial research, they discovered that mortality rates are falling for almost all Americans, except for one segment. And that was the white working class. Uh, you know, more recently, the black working class also, their mortality rates are rising. And that's an anomaly. And what was really striking is that for the past three years, except for this most recent set of data that came out last year, three years in a row, life expectancy for the average American uh, has had been falling. And that hadn't happened uh, uh, since 1918, 100 years ago, mm. when we had the flu pandemic. So even during the Great Depression, uh, life expectancy was still rising. Here, we have the hottest economy <laughs> that we can imagine in recent history, and yet we have falling life expectancy. And last year, the most recent data, they said life expectancy ticked up, but that was because we have new methods for saving people who have cancer. The underlying trend of uh, deaths of despair from suicide, from, you know, uh, from uh, alcohol-related deaths and drug overdoses is still there. I don't want to leave the impression that this is really just about the working class because at the end of the day, you know, the metaphor that we're all on the same boat, uh, you know, there's a great party in the first-class cabin above deck, but it wouldn't be terribly reassuring that, oh, yeah, that hole in the boat, that's below decks, you know, that, that obviously a hole in a boat mm -hmm. affects everybody at uh, at some point. And that's kind of the situation we think the country is in. So how did you take the data then and interweave it with the stories of the people that you knew and that you, Nick, grew up with and rode the number six bus with? Well, we kind of focused on two families in particular. The Knapp family uh, got on the bus right after I did, a working class family that had done very, very well uh, when I was a kid and economically seemed in good shape, was heading upward. And um, four of the five nap kids are now gone from um, drugs and alcohol. The only one who survived, survived because he was in the Oregon State Penitentiary for 13 years. And then another uh, family also on the bus that we were very close to and Cheryl knew as well, um, the Green family. Uh, four of those five kids are also uh, now gone. And, um, you know, trying to understand what happened and also trying to address a narrative in this country that those who fall off the tightrope have themselves to blame. We wanted to challenge that. Cheryl, you mentioned earlier you've been all around the world. You Both of you have reported from conflict zones, humanitarian crises. Um, that presents a lot of reporting challenges or just human being challenges talking when you're trying to absorb and uh, analyze and share all this grief. But when you have known these people for decades, what additional challenge is that on you? And then how do you 
juggle all of that and try to tell their stories and do it justice. Well, when we're overseas, of course, we can fly in and we can fly out. Uh, and we've always been very conscious of the fact that the local people who are there have to stay there, and we have to be very careful to protect and, and make sure that they are okay even after whatever we report is published. Mm-hmm. Here um, in the United States, it is different because uh, we uh, are writing about Nick's friends, and these are people who Nick grew up with on the number six school bus, and you know, when you cross a friend, it means so much more when, when you, uh, you know, when you are, you know, writing about someone else who, about their, uh, their tragic situation. And so we were very careful uh, to present the complexity of their lives. I mean, they were also courageous in letting us write about them. We explained it to them and, you know, really, exp- you know, took a lot of time to talk to them about, you know, what we were doing. Uh, that we want to present the realistic picture of the kind of, of challenges they are going through. And a lot of them understood. And one person told us that I'm doing this because if I can tell my story and it, and it prevents someone else from taking the same path, then, then that's great. Have any of them read the book? Yeah. Yeah, we were a little concerned about what they would think when they read the book and when they read about themselves we were also concerned about how other people would perceive Yam Hill. And we love this little town. And I don't want people to think of Yam Hill as this place where everybody's cooking meth and dying early. Um, and we don't want people to look at our old friends and see a bunch of uh, screw-ups Um and pigeonhole people. We're trying to break, shatter stereotypes. We don't want to perpetuate them. Um, but, you know, I think that the people in the book, many of them are deeply conservative. They're Trump supporters. They have very different politics from us. But I think that they, frankly, kind of appreciated, you know, the depiction of these issues and all their complexities and what they... They're not looking for sympathy. Mm-hmm. They're looking for respect and dignity and, I think, attention. And um, I think it went over pretty well. What was the job market like in uh, Yam Hill when you were growing up? And, you know, what jobs did folks like uh, Clayton Green's dad have and uh, other um, their characters but their people who are in your book? Yeah. Um, so uh, Clayton's dad, for example, helped uh, build the Fremont Bridge here in Portland. Uh, he was a cement finisher, and he took a lot of pride in that job. And in general, there were a lot of people who had quite limited education, and they managed to get good union blue-collar jobs that earned a, really a, a good living uh, in a way that is kind of unfathomable now. And so the you know, the... Napstad laid sewer pipe. There were others who worked at the steel mill in, in McMinnville. Uh, some worked at the glove factory in Carleton. Um, those jobs have basically completely disappeared. And with them, not just, you know, not just the income stream, but also that sense of identity, a pride, a purpose uh, that came with it. The job's not just a paycheck. Absolutely. Um, and I think that we need to focus more on 
job creation for uh, people in the working class who some of them still don't have high school degrees. Uh, one in seven, one in six Americans still doesn't graduate from high school. I think we need to do a better job of keeping people in school so that they can at least have a high school degree because what's different about the earlier generation, uh, you know, the green, Tom Green, uh, he could get a great manufacturing job or a great, you know, you know, labor job without a high school degree. You can't, these are, those are disappearing. And so now you need a high school degree. But the problem is that because he and his wife weren't so educated, you know, their kids, you know, they didn't see that it was so necessary to have the high school degree because their parents got by without it. And that's what happened is that they struggled because they didn't stay in high school. Well, you talk in the book about education as, and this metaphor really struck us, uh, an escalator. It, it's an escalator for people to escape um, what may not be uh, really positive circumstances. What are the escalators now? They're still education. I mean, education really is the uh, the best escalator out of poverty. And what's What's also important for us to understand, for society to understand, is that uh, when you actually try and address the, the problems when kids are little, it's much more cost effective and much more effective. Uh, so if kids, you know, nowadays, one child is born every 15 minutes with an exposure to opioids in their system. I mean, that's just, you know, incredible. And so if we can catch those babies when they're young, when their brain is developing at its most rapid pace from the age of zero to five, mm. if we can actually, uh, you know, course correct uh, whatever it is they've had, had to suffer, suffer through, uh, we can put them on the right path. I would just add that, so as Cheryl says, the best escalator out of poverty is education. That's true whether you're in Oregon or in Zimbabwe. But in both Oregon and Zimbabwe, in a lot of other places, that escalator is basically broken for those who need it. So if you are an affluent uh, family that is committed to education, then you can write up that escalator and get a great education. If you're um, in a family of limited means, then you're going to go to a school district full of low-income kids mm -hmm. and get fewer resources directed to you. So in low-income school districts in the U.S., their kids on average are four grade levels behind those in rich school districts, and that should just be intolerable. You make a, a statement in the book that it's basically state-sanctioned child neglect in America. Um, yeah. That's a pretty bold statement, but uh, you seem to back it up with the receipts. You know, we as a country accept levels of child poverty that would be unacceptable in other country, in other advanced countries. And we have the same tools that we could use to address that child poverty if we wanted to. Britain, under Tony Blair, cut child poverty by half. Mm. And we could do the same things. Child allowances would go an awful long way to do that. And we decide that, no, that's not a priority. Um, tax cuts for corporations are, um, you know, wars in Afghanistan or Iraq are, but not reducing child poverty. And that's because children don't vote. <laughs> and they don't have a lobby group for them. And that's what uh, influences uh, Washington. Well, you mentioned child allowances, which was actually one of the recommendations you make in the book for things that we could be pursuing as a country. Um, you know, what other policies or what other approaches uh, can you offer for Americans to reach for hope, as your book's subtitle says? 
our three top picks might be uh, early childhood education, uh, and that's great for both the kids and for parents who want to work. Uh, it provides high-quality childcare. It enables greater labor force participation. Uh, second, uh, drug treatment programs. It is crazy that we deal with people with addictions by locking them up. Uh, instead of treatment, which is cheaper, which pays for itself many times over. And maybe a third recommendation would be greater emphasis on job training for young people who are not going to college and job retraining for those who end up getting laid off. And I would add job creation. I mean, job creation, matching the training with uh, the new jobs that are coming online. I mean, we're not going to have we're not going to bring back the old manufacturing jobs. And so we do have to re prepare, you know, not only the younger generation, but the current generation who lost their manufacturing jobs for, you know, jobs in different areas. One of the through lines in the book is that personal responsibility is kind of a, a myth or something that's been perpetrated uh, against the American people. Um, but you didn't really talk much uh, about the media's role in that. Um, we're looking at five decades here, basically, of American history. This also kind of coincided with the rise of cable television, with the rise of Fox News, of Rush Limbaugh, of AM radio. I mean, what role do you think that has played in kind of spreading this message to Yamhill County, to the whole country? So... I'm not sure which way causation went in terms of uh, things like Fox uh, News and Rush Limbaugh, but I do think that there was a more conservative ethos that came about that to some degree coincided with uh, Nixon's Southern strategy and with uh, Reagan's rise and that in part it implicitly suggested that if you invest in human capital, if you provide benefit programs, then they will benefit the other, then they will benefit African Americans in particular. And that government is kind of <laughs> invariably going to screw things up. And so people should rely on rugged individualism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here in Oregon, we all grow up with the uh, with the stories of the pioneers and their right. courage and their rugged individualism and all their barn raisings and so on. And, and all that is true. And they were unbelievable in their, in their courage. But at the end of the day, the reason they crossed the country and came here to the Willamette Valley was because of a government benefit program because they knew once they got to Oregon, if they were white, they'd get 640 acres. And that was a fantastic program that helped disadvantaged Americans that created the country, you know, the land that we have. And it was followed by uh, rural electrification, uh, by the GI Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. And those weren't, you know, those weren't looking at personal responsibility. They were looking at collective social responsibility to create opportunities and build build the capacity of citizens so that the economy would grow in an inclusive way. I do think that the media itself should play a bigger role in trying to, uh, you know, look more carefully at what this uh, narrative of personal responsibility has, has done to society. Uh, and, you know, it's something that the mainstream media doesn't cover because it's not an event. Right. It's actually a trend. It's it's something that's happening. Uh, it's a social, cultural uh, trend. And they tend to do something that they tend to cover, you know, things that happened yesterday. But I do think that the mainstream press really should take a, a better, uh, a bigger role in trying to figure out how we actually 
uh, report better on a lot of these issues that just aren't things that happened yesterday. Well, speaking of leaving stuff out, was there you you mentioned in the book that you traveled to all 50 states in your reporting for the book. Were there things that you had to edit out that you just really wish could have stayed in the book? And what were those? Oh, lots of stories, actually. So we can't tell you now. <laughs> your editor's not listening. <laughs> right. No, we'll but we, no we did leave um, some incredible stories out, but it was just getting too long. <laughs> no, but there were, uh, you know, some incredible stories. I mean, you know what? The... The challenge was that there were so many tragic stories in America, we couldn't fit them all in. I mean, that was what was so disheartening is that, boy, there's no shortage of people who are facing these kind of challenges. Well, let's take a break and we can talk a little bit more about the book and and some of the uh, policy suggestions that you make in it. Is this an optimistic book? Yes. Um, Convince me. Okay. <laughs> no, we, uh, we've, we've read various reviews that describe it as gut-wrenching. That seems to be a common word. And um, yes, th- I mean, there is no doubt that there is tremendous suffering out there. And I witnessed that among my old friends. But these are problems that we know how to solve. And we know that partly because every other country has managed to solve problems of automation and globalization. And Many parts of the country are doing much, much better than other parts. So um, we have the toolboxes to address these issues. And we see what can happen when we invest in people. We, One of our friends was growing up in, in southern Oregon uh, at the same time I was in Yam Hill. A um, girl called Anne. Um, oldest of five working class kids. She was in Ashland High School, uh, spring of senior year. Her English teacher, Mrs. Converse, said, um, Anne, where are you going to college? And said she wasn't going. And Mrs. Converse uh, kind of, you know, put, dragged her to the office and really, really strongly encouraged her to apply to University of Oregon. And did, under pressure, got a scholarship, studied journalism, got a job at the local TV station yeah. in Medford, and Ann Curry ended up at the Today Show. And, you know, it, it's just a reminder for us that talent is universal, but opportunity is not. We're in the age of innovation when it comes to social policy solutions. Universities and colleges, they're all doing research on how do we address our social problems. They're coming up with lots of different solutions. And Private philanthropy is actually funding a lot of these experiments. I mean, we talk about some of them in tightrope. We go to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. We go to Baltimore Station. We go to a lot of different places where these solutions are being put in practice. And what we need is scale. We need federal intervention because a lot of these uh, solutions work, uh, but at a small level, and we need to, you know, have them multiply multiplied across the country. Right. Uh, Mayors love to talk about cities as kind of a, you know, a petri dish of innovation, right? But federally, we haven't seen a lot of movement on some of these policies. I mean, mass incarceration. um, More recently, President Trump has taken an interest in this, um, or uh, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, or both. Um, But what, what other avenues do you see kind of even glimmers of optimism on the federal level uh, that we could start uh, taking little bites at the apple of, of this huge crisis? Well, first of all, I think that there are a number of cities that are already trying to implement drug rehab 
rehabilitation diversion program. So people mm -hmm. who are destined for, you know, uh, long prison sentences, if the underlying reason for them committing the crime is related to addiction to drugs, they're saying, well, wow, let's not lock them up and leave them there. Let's actually send them to drug rehabilitation because while the investment may be a lot more in the initial stages, then you actually have a productive member of society coming out at the other end and you save so much money, uh, you know, from all the money that it costs to imprison someone for so many years. So that's one. Um, and then there were other uh, areas, like you, you're seeing states now take charge. And, you know, Kentucky right now is trying to, you know, create bandwidth for all. This is a program that they've, you know, been embroiled in for a few years, and it's been, you know, I had cost overruns, but the idea that they are trying to bring bandwidth to the rural areas in Kentucky is really important. Because Talking it about will. internet? Yes, yes, internet. Even now, there are many places in the rural areas of the U.S. that do not have internet access, which is just horrible in, in this day and age. How can you actually, you know, call yourself living in the modern age? And so states are really trying to, you know, do things for the citizens. They're under-resourced, uh, and that's a problem. And I also think what's also encouraging is that Medicaid, a number of states are also uh, expanding Medicaid. And you have, you know, states like Idaho that are traditionally quite conservative. Mm -hmm. They're actually taking the step to expand Medicaid. And, you know, that's because their citizens are calling for it. Their citizens need it. And a lot of the people we we spoke to in, in Oregon, they're so grateful that Oregon has expanded Medicaid. I, I want to follow up on that thread a little bit with um, the people who told you stories. Um, the way the book is structured, we get to know folks like the Naps and the Greens and other folks first, and we get a pretty deep dive into their stories. And then you start to bring in uh, the policy recommendations toward the end. Was that a deliberate choice to structure the book that way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, you know, we're, we're storytellers. We're doing essentially the same thing that Homer was doing 3,000 years ago. But we want to do it to clarify some of these issues that are confronting the country. And, you know, there's something maybe we can learn from people wrestling with addiction. And the first thing you do when you have a substance abuse problem is you got to just face the full extent of the problem, that yes, you have an addiction. And then the second thing you've got to understand is it's not hopeless. You can get over it. You can beat it. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what the U.S. I think the U.S. has to face the extent of its problems and also understand that it's not hopeless. You know, Americans are a generous people. We always hear that. And that's played out in your reporting all around the world and the causes that people donate to. But is America in our policies, a cruel country? That's a really interesting question. And I think the answer is yes. And I think part of it is because this, uh, at the policy level, this uh, narrative of personal responsibility has sort of taken over. And it started in the 1980s, you know, with President Reagan, when he said, oh, they're just welfare queens. And, you know, you know, you know, the government is the problem. It's not the solution. Well, you know, in other countries, the government you know, workers are really smart uh, uh, people. I mean, you know, they, they go to the best universities and, and they're very well educated. Mm -hmm. And we can do that too. And government actually can be a solution. Government is made up of people. It's not this big monolithic thing. It's made of people who go to school, who also can get educated and who also, you know, have empathy and who want to do good in the world. So I do think that uh, we give uh, our government workers a short shrift. But, the, you know, it's funny because the cruelty comes across for those who are left behind economically, but not in other domains. 
you know, if somebody is poor, then it's their fault. And it's not just an economic failing. It's a moral failing. They've slipped off that tightrope. Only the only way to teach them a lesson is to have them hit the ground with a big thud. But if you look at um, diabetes, now here it's, it's something that is partly uh, related to behaviors. And yet nobody says that, you know, ah, we shouldn't treat people with uh, diabetes. Uh, car accidents are partly a result of people driving too fast or texting. Nobody says, oh, no reason for airbags because it'll teach people a lesson if they die or if their kids die or we should put spikes in dashboards to really teach them a lesson. And yet somehow in the world of poverty, we want to make it we, – we really want to be mean and we've created – requirements that are humiliating and that push people off and deny them help. If you don't work, uh, you won't get this Medicaid or you won't get your uh, TANF or you won't get uh, X, Y, or Z, right? And it's not just work. It's people jumping through, making people jump through hoops when, uh, you know, that there's uh, one state has a requirement for dental care that you have to pay a dollar a month and has to be paid each month. And it costs more to to, to process these payments than it takes in. And when people are moving all the time, changing addresses, invariably they get behind and then they miss a payment and all of a sudden they're not covered and their kids aren't covered. You made up the argument for big government, quote unquote, can be good and government provides uh, services that benefit millions of people, but that's kind of a a left or progressive um, policy stance. But the book, you also make an argument that conservatives, um, the focus on the family, focus on a two-parent household, be it same sex or um, opposite sex, that that's a powerful stabilizing force in more ways than we might realize. Can you explain a little bit um, how that bore out in the reporting and kind of what it means to grow up in a two-parent household? Well, you mentioned reporting, and that's really what um, a lot of our uh, conclusions stem from. We look at evidence, and so whether it's left, right, we look at just evidence-based, you know, bubbling up, what do those conclusions point to? And it does point to the fact that two-parent households are much more stable, partly, well, you have two incomes, but partly also that, you know, especially for boys, if there's a role model, uh, you know, in the household, usually a male role model, that it really is very, um, you know, encouraging for you know, raising, you know, young boys. And there is this thing called the success sequence uh, that um, has been, you know, really, uh, you know, uh, ardently supported by conservatives, but it has also proven that it works, that you graduate from high school, you get a full-time job, and you have kids after marriage. And the research uh, shows that of the people who follow the sequence, 2% you know, are in poverty. Of those who don't do any of those three, 79% are in poverty. And that's just the empirically you know, what they have found. We can do a lot to encourage young people to follow those three steps. Stay in high school. We can take policies that basically encourage students to, you know, stay in school until they're 18 and hopefully they'll have graduated high school. Or, you know, if you want a driver's license, you have to be enrolled in school. Uh, So we can do things to really encourage them to get their way through each of those three steps. 
And did you find that the success sequence held true, whether in Yamhill or any of the other places you did reporting? Well, so we're relying on, you know, researchers who are doing this research and they have, you know, done surveys to find out that, yes, it does work. And there's been a lot of research that also, show, you know, tries to segment the population to see what happens if it's millennials. And they're finding that it does hold true. There's a there's an interesting paradox that um, so educated liberals tend to be um, much less judgmental about family structure or about any of these issues, but actually tend to <laughs> to follow it. So it's uh, people there's this expression that uh, that uh, liberals uh, talk left but walk right. Conversely, for working class conservatives, they deeply value many of these traditional structures, but they don't live by them because of the collapse of the working class. And so, you know, they, meanwhile, talk right, but walk left. A lot of the tragedy in your reporting is the death of young men or men in their 40s, 50s, maybe early 60s. But, um, you know, even today in my generation, I'm 36, there's uh, talk of you know, uh, a lot of the school shooters are young men. And, you know, wh what's going on with men in this country um, and what can we do to address some of these issues? Um, I mean, Cheryl and I spent much of our careers writing about uh, women who'd been left behind and were not able to get opportunities for that reason. And in the U.S., it has been... Um, at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, it has been boys and men who have struggled in particular. Uh, boys are much more likely to drop out of school. They're much more likely to die from drug overdoses. They're much more likely to have contact with the criminal justice system. Uh, they're more likely to commit suicide. And there are a lot of different arguments and analyses about fundamentally what is what is going on. But there are... A, you know, we don't have to have agreement on the reasons for that gap, but we do know that we can save some of those lives and the things like job training, uh, career academies for kids at risk of dropping out of school, mm -hmm. uh, drug treatment, that all these things help boys and also girls. So in your book, you have the policy proposals and uh, specific recommendations, and even some of those can, for some readers, might feel still too big to get their arms around. However, you then have another section where you talk about things you can do as an individual right now, and one of the um, programs or resources you suggest is in Oregon. Could you talk about that one a little bit? Provoking Hope is a amazing organization that was founded by a woman named Diane Reynolds, who herself has had a tragic past. And she was presiding over um, so many, as, as a pastor, she was presiding over, you know, just so many people dying who were young. She finally decided to open up uh, basically a peer counseling uh, center, and she rented a, a small room for $200 a month and just let people come in. And since then, it has just blossomed. And she's very effective because she has people who went through these uh, painful journeys, and they have street cred, and they come in and say, you know, look, there's light at the end of the tunnel. This is what you need to do. Just keep at it, and you will get there. 
and they have lots of um, psychotherapy sessions for men and women. Uh, they give them access to resources, whether it's health health needs or whether it's medical needs. They're now partnering with the health services department of of you know Yamhill County, and that's been extremely successful. She's she's a su- success story, not only herself personally and for provoking hope, but also for helping heal so many uh, people in the community. One of our dear friends was Rick Goff, and he he passed away, but his son. Uh, Drew was in prison for a while, had been using since he was 12. And we were very worried about Drew. And then we met him at a Provoking Hope event, and he's doing fantastically. He's about to celebrate two years yeah. drug-free. He's uh, He has a wonderful son, who, and he is like now the best dad ever. And it is so wonderful to see the family thriving like this and provoking hope gets credit. What else would you want folks to know about Yam Hill that isn't in the book or that we didn't talk about today? Well, I don't want people just to think of Yam Hill as a number six bus with people, you know, struggling. It We produce fantastic wines. We're a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful little town. Um, well, I th- you mentioned that, but I think most Oregonians think of it as the latter and not the former. So this book really... Yeah, I and think brought both, that to light in a very visceral, powerful way. And both are true. And just as America has a Wall Street that is thriving mm-hmm. and plenty of communities that are struggling, the same is true at a micro level of Yam Hill. And we we produce wines that are served at state banquets in the White House, and we have people cooking meth. And um, we have people who are thriving and doing wonderfully. And we have a lot of kids who are deeply at risk. And both are true elements of this country and of Yamhill. But I think ultimately, the reason why we need to actually lift up so many of these other Americans is comes down to uh, America's role in the rest of the world. I mean, if we want to compete at the level that we are used to competing at, that we like to think of ourselves in competing at, we have to face the fact that there are other countries, China and India, who have far more people power than we have because mm-hmm. of their population sizes, and they are turning into basically economic machines. And if we want to continue uh, to you know, maintain our level of excellence, we need to, you know, have all Americans, as many as possible, firing on all cylinders. How would this book be different if you focused on Philomath or Lakeview or Joseph, some other part of the state? I don't think it'd be that different if I was from Philomath or Joseph <laughs> or Lakeview. Um, I, I do think that uh, since since Cheryl and I finished the book, we've been traveling around the country and people keep coming up to us and saying, I'm from Maine, I'm from Kentucky, I'm from Ohio, and my little town is just like Amhill. What political legacy, I guess we're in an election year and it came out during an election year, I mean, what politically would you like to see this affect uh, from your megaphones that you have? I mean, what, what more can you do, I guess, to affect the conversation? Cory Booker, when we had an excerpt in the Times, so Cory Booker stopped his uh, campaign caravan under an overpass in Davenport, Iowa, and read the whole excerpt to his staff. <laughs> and that was fantastic. And, you know, we, I, there are at least two, uh, candidates who are, um, who are reading it. And we hope that they will raise these issues. And I think there's a mistaken perception among some Democrats that the white working class is a lost cause and will just vote for Trump. 
Um, I don't think that's quite right, that these are people who tend to be socially conservative. And so on issues like abortion or gun control, they're more likely to, to, to vote for Republicans. But on economic issues, they're actually fairly liberal. And so on if the minimum wage or access to health care or parental leave is on the top of the agenda, they're more likely to vote for a Democratic candidate. And Democrats should fight for those votes. And, you know, the other thing that Cory Booker said was, you know, um, he was reading the expert excerpt and he said, this is why we have to run for the presidency. It's because it's to fight for these people. And I think that that message doesn't get out enough among the Democratic candidates. Uh, uh, Trump is masterful at saying, okay, you know, this is a blue collar boom. You know, we're doing this for the fighting Mm -hmm. for the worker. Um, he's actually, his policies don't bear that out. Uh, but I think the Democrats don't focus enough on this, uh, you know, part of society. There's a lot of talk about the middle class, but it isn't as much about the working class. And, you know, they should take a walk through these towns like Yamhill. They should meet these people and talk to them and see and let them, let these people tell them what they need and what they want. Because I don't think they've done that enough. What about the Republicans? I mean, how do you battle the, uh, machinery that's in place message-wise um, when they've been beating the drum of this narrative of government services for decades. A lot of the traditional framing was because of a very racialized, implicitly racialized narrative. And these days, as a lot of white Americans are struggling from these problems, the truth is that there has been much more compassion shown, much more interest in more enlightened policies. One of the uh, senators who reached out to us after Tightrope was published was Senator Rob Portman from Ohio, which has a big problem with opioids mm-hmm. and and has indeed seen a reduction in opioids. And so I think that there is some chance now as um, as these issues become less racialized. So It's hypocritical. There's a double standard. But if the result can be smarter policies that save money and save lives, bravo. Switching gears just a bit, a lot of the lessons in your book, um, kind of scenes of American cruelty and kindness wrapped in in one package, can be summed up in another Oregon story uh, highlighted by the Oregonian Samantha Swindler. Um, This is the tale of a U.S. bank teller who was fired for helping a man Uh, whose money was tied up in a bank just before Christmas. Um, She left work to meet him and gave him 20 bucks. You wrote about this as well, Nick. Um, Why did this rise to your attention? You know, there's this larger issue about capitalism and corporations run amok. And uh, young Americans now have higher approval rating for socialism than for capitalism. You want to know why? It's because a bank does something really stupid like firing two people who help somebody on Christmas Eve, who help a customer on Christmas Eve. And uh, Samantha and the Oregonian did a fantastic job publicizing uh, that, Mm -hmm. and it moved me. And um, I thought that it would move readers as well. And, you know, what we have in journalism is a certain spotlight. And if we can spotlight injustices and make that bank feel feel a little pressure on the back of its neck and make every other bank CEO a little bit nervous about what we might write, then 
we're doing our job. And we also hope that Tightrope will do the same for the rest of the country and that, you know, it that it will, you know, get the attention of policymakers and, and you know, each of the campaigns so that they will say, wait a second, we are leaving a, a huge uh, segment of society. And it's not just a tiny percent. I mean, one of the reasons that Trump got elected is that there is so much resentment. If you actually overlay a map of the counties that supported Trump and the counties where the deaths of despair are the greatest, they overlap very heavily. And so, you know, this is a pain that, that Americans are feeling and they're voting um, on that pain. Well, thanks so much for sharing uh, your insights and for telling the stories of, of your town. I mean, it's very powerful and we appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thank very you. Much. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. And come to Yam Hill. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. Check out my stories on the transportation beat at OregonLive.com slash commuting, or follow me on Twitter at Andrew Thien. If you're listening to these episodes and you like the show, please leave us a rating and review. It helps others find the show. Until next time.